You're listening to online media from Glendale Christian Church. For more information, visit us at glendalecc.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at glendalecky. I told Tim earlier, I said I always appreciate the work he does on the opening packages, but I really like this one. This is probably my favorite one that he's had in recently, and I like it because of the music. It makes me feel like I'm walking up to a Western, like I'm getting ready to go to a gunfight with Clint Eastwood. Probably wouldn't work out too well for me, but you know, hey, that's part of it. Hey, I'm really glad that you're here. We want to welcome in our online community as well. Thanks for tuning in on Facebook and and watching with us and and being a part of our worship. And uh, hey, I got to tell you, this whole series, this Raising Giant Slayers, you know, it's kind of themed off David and Goliath. And and the reason we're doing this series is because we want to raise our kids, our grandkids, the, the kids that are a part of this church, the next generation of church leaders. We want to raise them to be able to conquer the giants that they're facing. And, and, and you know, you just look around the world and sometimes they're going to be the underdog against the world. And, and, and we want them to be able to, to slay those giants. But I got to tell you, I was umpiring a baseball game this week, a high school baseball game. And when I saw the game on my schedule, I knew it probably wasn't going to be a very good game. The, the, one of the teams that I was officiating for, they're not known for their athletic prowess. And so um, I, I kind of thought, well, it's going to be a, a, a short ball game, going to get a run, run mercy rule. You know, so it, it'll be, it'll just be what it is. Well, turns out I was semi-correct. It was a run rule, mercy run rule game. It was not a short game, though. It was a very long game because we still had to play three innings and they still had to get nine outs. And that proved to be quite a a struggle for them at times. In fact, the final score of the game was 25 to 1. Now, if you're not a baseball fan, that's not a typical baseball score. Typically, you know, 3-2, 4-2, something like that, that's a good ball game. 25 to 1 makes for a real long ball game. And so uh, we were in the bottom of the third, and we only had to play three innings because of the, the mercy rule. We're in the bottom of the third. The team that is down 24 runs is up to bat. They are down to their last out, down 24 runs, and there's this kid in the dugout, and he is still, come on, guys, we got this. We can do this. We're not out of this. And I really loved his confidence. I didn't believe him, but I really loved his confidence. I mean, and, and I was thinking about that, and I thought, man, that's, that's the kind of kid I want on, if, you know, if I'm coaching a team. That's the kind of kid that I want that never gives up, that doesn't realize that no matter the obstacle, how big the obstacle is, if you're down 24 runs with one out to go, we still got a shot. That's, that's the kind of attitude that I, I want to cultivate in my kids. That's honestly the kind of attitude that I want us to be to cultivate in this series, that regardless of how big the obstacle that might be in front of us is, there's a God who has promised to never leave us or forsake us, so we are never out of it. We always have a chance. And so, so we're, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in depth a little later in the message. But, but I love that idea that, you know, hey, we're down 24 runs. We still got this. We are, we are in this. They weren't. They, they, the kid, next kid made it out and the ballgame was over. But, but that's the attitude, that, that hope, that confidence that I want all of us to have. Because, not because of our own ability, but because we have a, a really big God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am always with you. And because of that, we can have that kind of hope that we are never out of things. Last week I mentioned 
in part two of our series that we are builders of families and of individuals and of legacies. And really, when we think about building legacies, there's nothing greater that you, that you can build than a legacy. And when we have an idea of what we're building and when we are willing to pay the price for what it costs to build those things, we will use the highest quality of building blocks. And when we use the highest quality building blocks and, and we're aware of what we're building, then the reward is great. And now there are a lot of building blocks that could be considered the most important ones. And this week we're going to talk about a few of those building blocks as we try and build families and homes and legacies that will last. As we try to build families that will raise up kids that will be giant slayers for the, for, for the future. And we might as well start with the most important one. Because there are several that we could consider important, but I'm going to tell you this, there's one that's more important than all of them, and it's love. As governmental agents representing God himself, we are required to build something in and through our children's lives that represents God well. The greatest of all building materials for our homes is love. God's love, the rarest of all loves, that gives and requires nothing in return. Love is one of those things that's easy to write down on paper. It's easy to write down on a card or on a Valentine's Day card and send to somebody. But love is one of those things that's much more difficult to to practice. And yet, it is at the heart and soul of, of a home that raises giant slayers. Love is the most essential building block for homes. It's, it's the cornerstone. We, we see the greatest example of love in the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross, where uh, Jesus would lay down his life for his friends. But, but maybe the best working definition of love is found over in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul writes the, the love chapter of the Bible. This, this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It's the, love is not jealous. Love does not brag. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I love how one translation says that love never fails. Any family that tries to live to this standard will experience things that other families could only dream of. And God trusts those uh, who give themselves to His purpose with with clarity of heart and mind to to live to this standard. And that's what He expects, is that this is the standard in which we will strive to to create in our homes. This love requires nothing in return. And it's called perfect love because it's God's love. And living with this love, the cornerstone uh, uh, of all our homes, uh, the cornerstone of behaviors, it sets boundaries for life. And that's a good thing. We, we think of boundaries as, as sometimes bad things, but every home needs boundaries. Every, every person needs boundaries. And, and this love, it sets those boundaries for us. Now, in the family dynamic, the, the husband is responsible for the standard of love that, <clears throat> that is found in the home. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's what we read in the Ephesians 5 passage last week. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Be willing to give himself up for her, just like Christ was. And really, that's the only standard worth following. And what we find is that when we strive to live to that sacrificial love, that there's a standard there for the household that that just is hard to ignore in tough seasons. It's hard to ignore... um, that, that sacrificial love when you're going through tough times as a family, and you will go through tough times as a family. It's hard to ignore that love that's there when it's that sacrificial love. And husbands, men, listen to me on this. You are the one responsible for setting that standard. 
He, God was very clear. Paul was very clear when he writes in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, here's what I find interesting about that Ephesians 5 passage. That, you know, we find a command to love, for husbands to love their wives, but we don't see a reciprocal command. There's no command in there for the wife to love her husband. And I always felt like Paul, maybe Paul should have included that. Like that, that maybe he just forgot. You know, he was busy writing this down. He, he got on a roll writing stuff down, and he just forgot to put that in there, right? But he didn't. There, there is no command for the wife to love her husband. What we find is a command for the wife to respect her husband. And so I got to thinking about why, why, why is there not a command for the wife to love her husband. Well, I think that there's a reason why. As it pertains to our relationship with Jesus, 1 John 4, 9 says, We love because He first loved us. His love for us is what equips us to love Him in return, with, with perfect love. And that same principle can be applied to the home and to the family as well. When the husband loves the wife well, when he loves sacrificially, as, as Christ loved the church, when he's willing to give himself up for her, the wife and children have little problem loving in return. It's a natural thing that happens. It, it's, it's one of those things that if I love well, my wife will love me in return. And she, she doesn't have to be commanded to do that. It, it flows naturally from her. When I love sacrificially, my kids will love me back. Not because they've been commanded to, but because they've seen that this is somebody that loves me and I want to love them in return. It's the same way with Christ in our relationship. We see that Christ has loved us and he loves us so well. And that because of his love for us, we love him. And so you've got husbands, and your job is to set the standard for love, to sacrificially love your wife, to love your kids so well that they will love you in return. On the other hand, though, the wife is the one that is responsible for creating the atmosphere of peace in the home. Paul, Paul talks about that in Ephesians 5, that, that the wife sets, sets, the, sets the atmosphere. She kind of sets the tone. And, and men, if you've been married for very long, you know, you know this is true in your home, that, that wives kind of set the tone. Husbands, you might set the standard for love, but wives set the tone for how things run in the house. And that old saying, if mama ain't happy, what? Ain't nobody happy. That's right. Mom sets the standard for peace of, of the home. That, that's an atmosphere of, of peace. It's a presence-based value. That means as, as mom and dad, we have to learn how to host the Holy Spirit uh, of God in our homes. Now, we don't often think about that. We don't think about the Holy Spirit being present in our homes. We think about the Holy Spirit being present in church because that's where the Holy Spirit should be, right? But we don't think about the Holy Spirit being in our homes or in our schools or in our workplaces. We, we just kind of think, uh, Holy Spirit, do your thing at church and, and that'll be good, right? But no, no, no. The Holy Spirit should be everywhere with us, right? We should, we should dwell in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so that means we have to learn to host the Holy Spirit well. And there are two ways, primary ways in which the heart of the Holy Spirit is violated. The first one is this, by grieving Him. Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And then the second one, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Don't quench the Spirit. So, so we, we violate, excuse me, we violate the, the Holy Spirit, the heart of the Spirit, by grieving and quenching. One is done with Wrong attitudes, thoughts, and behaviors, values, and, and, and plans. That's how we grieve the Holy Spirit. The second one, we quench the Holy Spirit when we respond, when we do not respond, I should say, to His leading and to His empowering, uh, to, to His presence. One is when we do wrong. The other is when we fail to do right. His abiding presence is always 
with us. It enables us to, to do what He commands. And so when we fail to do that, we, we're quenching the Holy Spirit. The, these two building blocks of these principles of sacrificial love and, and peaceful atmosphere, those are just principles that we live by. Keep in mind that the instructions for, for those two things are, are to, for the husband to love sacrificially and for the wife to, to create the atmosphere of peace. They're, they're functions that both people share, that both partners share. While one may be expressly written for, for the other, it's something that the other person still does as well. We, even It may not be my primary command to create peace in the home, but I'm going to strive to do that. It may not be the wife's primary command to, to love uh, sacrificially, but she's going to do that. that that's, <clears throat> those are, are functions that both partners share responsibility for. But having an understanding of what our primary responsibility is and what our primary contribution should be as husband and wife that aids us into building homes that are built for Christ. When we value, when, we, when the values of the kingdom of God shape how we think and what we, what we have an appetite for, then we know that they've taken root in our hearts, that that's what we long for. L- learning to identify and understand these kingdom principles helps us to be more intentional in living within the realm of, of God's kingdom, and, and they help us to better communicate the wisdom of God to other people, to, to the rest of the world. Think about it like this. Solomon, the wisest person to ever live, right? He asked for wisdom because, his respons- because of his responsibility as king. Solomon knew that his ability to reign as king, to govern his people, was outside, uh, his responsibility was outside of his ability. He didn't have the, the, the ability to do it without divine wisdom. And, that should, and, and that's kind of a, a tough thing to, to swallow, but, but that's also the correct position of every parent and grandparent. That your responsibility is beyond your natural ability. Our responsibility as parents, as grandparents, as, as a church family to raise up the next generation is beyond our natural ability. The, the challenge involved in parenting is exponentially more difficult now in our day, when you consider, especially when you consider everything that's going on within our world, just look at the world and know that, that there are things that our kids face now that, they, that we just didn't have to face. We just didn't have to. When, when I was in, in school, and I like to think it wasn't that long ago, but as I think about it, it was a long time ago. That, there are just things that my kids face that I never had to think about that I never had to worry about. I didn't have to worry about somebody posting something online about me and cyberbullying. We didn't have to deal with that. Cyberbullying, wasn't a, we had bullies. And, and, but, but you smacked a bully in the mouth once and it was kind of over, right? That's, that's how you dealt with bullies. But now people hide anonymously behind computer screens and, and bully and post things on, on social media about kids. And, and, and that's a real issue that our kids have to face. We didn't have to do that. And so, so we, as parents, as grandparents, as people who are going to be invested in the next generation, we, we simply have to ask God for wisdom. We simply have to ask God for wisdom and how to, to raise the next generation because our responsibility is greater than our ability. I, I mentioned this phrase last week, this phrase of living on earth as it is in heaven. And, and I, I just wonder what would happen if we decided that we would live here on earth as it, as it were in heaven. Meaning that as it is in heaven, so my number one value, my number one priority would be to be in the presence of God. 
All day, I would turn my attention to him. I would turn my attention to God in in the evenings. My number one value, my number one priority would be to live in the presence of God. What what would happen if if I decided I'm going to anchor my existence into the greatest reality in existence, the presence of God? What, what would happen if we determined to live that way? Well, I think our families would, would experience the presence of, presence of God in a way that families had never before had. It would change the way our families interacted with one another. It would change the way that we raised our kids. It would change the way that you interacted as husband and spouse. It would change the way you interacted with your in-laws. Anybody ever have an in-law they didn't want to deal with? You've, you said, don't raise hands. Some of, them, some of you are sitting by in-laws. If you're, if you're watching online and your in-laws aren't around, you can raise your hand. But, but, but Chris, your, your mother-in-law is sitting right next to you. If we, if we strive to live on earth as it is in heaven, my number one value is going to be to be in the presence of God. It would change the way that we dealt with people, that we interacted with people. It would change the way our, our kids interacted with each other. It would change the divorce rate in our, in our culture. It would change the way husbands and wives interacted with each other. It would, it would change the divorce rate. Do you know that more than 50% of divorces now end in, end in divorce? Marriages end in divorce? I guess divorces don't end in marriage. Maybe they do, but I guess they could. But Over half of all marriages now end up getting divorced. And you know what the sad part really is? Is that the divorce rate in the church isn't any different than it is in the rest of the world? Meaning that... If just because you come to church, just because you have a relationship with Jesus, doesn't mean that your marriage is any more likely to, to make it than a marriage that has no faith foundation? That's staggering to me. That hurts. You know what else I think? I think our, our families would, would, enter, would change in such a way that our, our kids would grow up in homes without fatherless homes. You know how many, that, um, 70% of all kids that grow up in fatherless homes are more likely to... Um, to, create, to be incarcerated? Do you know that? That if, if, if there's a, a home where there's not a father present, that child is 70% more likely to, create a, to, to commit a crime? That's staggering to me. But if we were to live as it is here on, on earth, as it is in, in heaven, I think it would change the way we interact it with each other. So, so mom and dad would interact differently with each other. And mom and dad would interact differently with children. And it would create a different atmosphere in the home. Because we would strive to be living in the presence of God. I think it would change the number of kids that grow up in the church. And then as soon as they leave mom and dad's house. They leave for college. They leave the church. Staggering the number of kids. That have grown up in church from the time they were born. All the way through 18. 940 weeks. And then they, they get that first bit of freedom, and they're gone. They leave the church, and, and most of them don't come back. We, we like to think that, hey, well, they're just kind of out there finding themselves. That's the phrase we use. They, they just got to find themselves. I don't know what that means. But, but that's what, what we say they're doing, and we think they're going to come back. But they don't come back. They don't come back. The, the overwhelming majority of those kids that leave the church when they go to college, they don't come back to church in their later adult years. That's staggering to me. And I think it's part of it is because we don't, we don't strive to live in the presence of God daily. Not in our homes, not in our churches, not in our schools, nowhere. You, what would happen? What would happen if our church 
If, if everybody in this church and everybody watching online committed, I'm going to live in the, in the presence of God every day. I'm going to live on earth as it is in heaven. That's going to be my attitude. It would change everything for us. It would change our churches. It would, we, we, it would change the way we interacted with one another at church. You know, there are people that come to church and they don't speak to anybody. And, and I, I should rephrase that. They're not spoken to by anybody. That's heartbreaking. That, the, that They might come to church and the only people that, that, they, that they say hi to or they interact with are the people that they came to church with. If we're going to be a family, we've got to talk to one another. We've got to interact with one another. We've got to see when, there, when there's somebody that is by themselves, we've got to go out of our way to say hello to that person. That's living in the presence of God. That's living on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm just going to tell you, if you don't like coming to church, well, you're not going to like heaven. You're not. It's going to be tough for you. Now, the preacher's going to be a little better there, but, yeah, I didn't, yeah. What are you talking about, Mike? You're not preaching there. <laughs> but it would change everything. It would change the way that our families interacted and our churches interacted, just the way that individuals interacted. But even if we determined to live that way, and I think that we should, there would still be times when that felt presence isn't there. And notice I said felt presence because as I said earlier, Jesus has promised to never leave us or forsake us, so he's always with us. But there, there's, there are going to be times when I think he shuts down our ability to, to be aware of his presence. He did this in the Old Testament. He did it as, as a test to, to, to see what his people would do when the inspiration was gone, so to speak. He, he did it to Hezekiah in the Old Testament in Second Chronicles 32. It says, God left him alone, him being Hezekiah. God left him alone only to test him so that he might know all that was in his heart. That, that happens as a, as a test for us to see how we're going to respond when it, when it feels like everything's against us. When the inspiration's gone, when the motivation's gone, when I don't feel like doing what's right. right? When I don't feel like going to church, when, I, when, when Adam's going to be long-winded again today and I don't feel like listening to that sermon. When, what am I going to do then? How am I going to respond then? That's, that's what's happening here. Ultimately, it's a test to see if, if we're going to obey God when we feel like it and when we don't feel like it. And I'll be honest with you, those moments are difficult, but they're vital because they determine how much of the glory of God we're able to carry. God, God, God's desire for us is to live and to thrive under the weightiness of His presence. But if, we've, if we're bent only to obey God when things are good, only when God is, is pouring out his richest blessings on us, only when things are going my way, when things are going the way that I want to, if we're, if we're bent only to do that or only when we can take the glory for ourselves, then we can't be trusted with what God has in store for us. So because of that, we have to learn the principles of the kingdom of God. And, and turning to them in those moments means that we understand what is important and valuable to God, even when the inspiration, even when the motivation is gone, even when I don't feel like it. And this might seem like a, like a strange topic to bring up, but this is why I think praising, praising God and giving God glory in difficult times is so important. By giving Him worship and praise when things are, are difficult, we develop that faith muscle that, that enables us to live and see beyond our, our immediate circumstances, that enables us to live beyond our immediate uh, emotional state. 
And those who learn how to do that can be trusted with more. God can give them more. And I'm just going to tell you that teaching this to our kids is essential. Teaching our kids how to, how, to, how to worship God, even when things don't go their way, even when life is difficult, you know, when, when boyfriend breaks up with girlfriend, when girlfriend breaks up with boyfriend, when, when all the world's going to end, right? Because every time something happens in the life of a teenager, the world's going to end. They got to know that there's a God who's not left them, who's not forsook, forsook them, a God who, who still is there for them. And so we have to teach them how to worship and give God praise even in the midst of those difficult circumstances. There will be a generation who will yield and dwell in, in the glory of God. And so it might as well be our children, right? Right? Like there, there's going to be a group, of, a, a, a generation that is going to rise up and, and be blessed by being in the presence of God. So it might as well be our kids. We might as well teach them how to do that so that they inherit all of the richest blessings of God, so that they live here on earth as it is in heaven. There, there's a phrase used in exercising uh, no pain, no gain. And you all have heard that before, I'm sure. But it's also useful in life. Muscles get sore in exercise, and so if you're not willing to work through the pain, then there's going to be very little development or growth of that muscle uh, that you're exercising. And endurance of of our faith is developed in the same way. That's one of our building blocks, endurance. And so living intentional helps us weather the painful decisions because there's there's pain on the other side. There's pain... There's gain on the other side of pain is what I should say. And I can't think of any area of life where that's more true than in raising children. The journey is, is littered with painful decisions. Sometimes the pain is, is just found in trying to be consistent with one child to the next or one, one moment to the next moment. It, sometimes it's, it's being consistent when it would just be so much easier to compromise in, in that moment to lessen the discomfort. Right? You, every, every parent's been there. You've got a kid that is just throwing a fit about something. And you're thinking, I've got to take a, take a hard stand, right? Because I, I can't give in. I've got, got to draw the line. They've got to learn. But man, it would be so much easier just to give in to them. Just to compromise, it'd be easier for everybody around, right? It'd be ever, easier for everybody in the grocery store that's looking at you going, why didn't they do something with that kid, right? Well, you, every parent's been there. there. But there's something greater than the pain, and it's the gain. The, the pain is temporary, but the gain is eternal. If, and if that weren't true, then the pain wouldn't be worth it. We endure because there's a greater reward, a much greater. The, the reward of seeing our children grow up in homes to respect an aspect of, of God's nature in an honest and wholesome way. And, and when that happens, we create legacy. And, and legacy cannot be overrated. We can't understate how important legacy is. Because think about when you're gone. What's going to be left? What's going to be left of you when you're gone? Nothing. Legacy. That's it. Legacy is, legacy is all you're leaving behind. That's it. So, so how your kids remember you, how, how your friends remember you, how your children or how your church remembers you, that's your legacy. So what legacy are you leaving behind? Are you going to leave behind a legacy of faith that, that blesses your kids for generations and blesses your family for generations to come? Or are you going to leave behind a legacy that's easily forgotten? Think about King David. King David left a mark on God's heart that was so significant that several hundred years later, God treated treated David's descendants with an increased measure of favor because they were David's descendants. That's remarkable. 
That, that touching the heart of God with our faithfulness and creating a legacy that would favor multiple generations should be the goal of every believing household. That, that God would be so moved by our faithfulness that he would continue to bless our, our families for generations to come. That should be our goal. Listen, presence is passion and passion is discipline. And we were never meant to be known for our discipline. We were meant to be known for our passion. But having the principles of his kingdom deeply embedded in us and understanding it helps us to navigate through seasons where inspiration is lacking. It helps us to endure. And if, we're, if our kids are going to be giant slayers, they're going to have to endure some difficult circumstances. Think about it in these terms. Outside of Christ... People perform to create an identity so that they might be accepted. That, that's the goal of every person uh, on the face of the earth. Everybody wants to be accepted by somebody. Nobody will ever tell you that I don't care. You know, they might tell you I don't care what other people think, but, but everybody wants to be accepted by somebody. Everybody wants to be part of, part of a group. And so outside of Christ, outside of Christian, Christianity, people perform to create an identity so that they can be accepted. But in Christ, things are different. We, we start out accepted by God. And from that place of acceptance, we are, we are created an identity. Our identity is formed in that. And it's out of that identity that we perform. When, when we model and teach that approach to life, it will enable our children to skip years of unnecessary crisis and engage fully with, with who God has created them to be. But we've got to model that in our own lives. We've got to understand that, that we don't have to perform to, to be accepted. We perform for God because we are accepted, because of who we are, because we are His children. That's our identity, that we are children of God. If you don't know who you are today, let me tell you who you are. You are a child of God. And, and your good deeds, your actions, all of those things that you do are a result of, of who you are. You don't do those things because of who you want to be. You do it because of who you are. And we've, and we've got to teach that to our kids. We've got to help them to know who they are, that they are Christian, that they are loved, that they are, that they are children of the Most High God. And they don't have to do whatever to be accepted by whatever group because they've already been, been accepted by the one whose opinion matters more than anybody else, by the Creator of the universe. And everything that we teach our children it has greater authority when we model it first in our lives. So adults, live your life like you are a child of the Most High God. Live your life as if you have been accepted because you have been accepted by God. I think that idea of, of teaching our children, that, that, this idea that things have a greater authority um, when we model it in our own lives, is especially true when we think about character as one of those building blocks. If I require something of my child, it first needs to be found in my life. Let, let's talk about this as we wrap up here in some very practical terms. For example, I cannot expect my boys to have a hunger for God's Word if they don't ever see me hunger for God's Word. They, they need to see me open up the Scriptures and read it for myself. Now, now, there are a lot of people who, who they read it by themselves. Their faith is kind of a private thing. And I'll tell you, if you're a parent, you can't afford for your faith to be private. Okay? You, you just can't afford to be, for your faith to be private. And so people get up and they, they read the Bible at first thing in the morning or they read it before they go to bed at night and it's all done by themselves. And I'm going to tell you, if you do that, keep doing that. That's a good thing. 
But make time for, for your kids to see you reading the Scriptures, for your grandkids to see you reading the Scriptures. And I'm not saying put on a show to impress them, but there are certain things that need to be on display in our lives. If we ever want the next generation of kids, uh, of, of Christian leaders, to, to have these kind of characteristics, these kind of habits, if we ever want them to have those, they have to see us model those things for us. So make time for your kids, your grandkids, to see you read the scriptures. The same is true for your prayer life. You know, we pray before meals or we pray before bedtime or we pray before we, we get up and start the day. But make time to pray with your kids, to pray with your grandkids so that they see that, that that's something that's modeled for them. How do you ever expect your kids to have a, any kind of prayer life if they don't ever see you pray? Jesus had to teach the disciples how to have a prayer life. He had to teach them. And they spent, they spent three years with Jesus. How do we think our kids are going to have a prayer life if we don't ever teach them that? We, we can teach character but in a number of ways. And one of the ways that we can do that is by including our, our children in the privilege of giving. Give them some money for, for the, or some possession for the sole purpose of giving it away. Offerings at church are a great place to start, but also make time to, to give to those who, who just need some gas money or who are struggling with food. Give to them. Stir up compassion in your kids at an early age and let them, and let them participate in the joy of giving. We always say it's better to give than to receive, but if we never teach our kids how to give, then they're always going to think it's better to receive, Right? They're never going to understand the joy that comes in giving. So, so stir up compassion in, our, in, in them at a young age. Here's something that I think is important. Compliment the individuals of your household in front of each other. And, and in the presence of, of your children, give honor to those who are outside of your family. And let me just say this. If you've got kids or grandkids in school, don't talk bad about your kids' teachers in front of them. If you're not happy with the teacher, t- talk to the teacher by, by, you know, have a private conversation, but don't talk bad about your kids' teachers in, in front of them. You know what it does? It creates an atmosphere where, where that teacher is against your child, and that's typically not the case. Most, most teachers genuinely want what's best for their students, so, so talk well about them. Give them honor, but it also it helps, it helps your kid to develop honor, to develop a, in, in recognizing honor in other people. So then you can, you can stir it up by just asking questions like, hey, what do, you, what do you think about, and then name one of their friends. Or if you really want, want to get your kids thinking about honor and, and, and the character of a person, ask, hey, what do you think about, and then name one of your friends. And then see what they have to say about them. And, and let me just say, if they've got something bad, if they don't have anything good to say about them, maybe you should find new friends. The point is just to get them to thinking about the character found in people couple more things real quick just practical things that we can do to teach character repent quickly and openly if I treat someone rudely in front of my kids it's vital that I clean that mess up whether it's with an apology or some other action it's vital that they see me do that when when parents when you have a discussion with with your spouse that that maybe gets a little loud at times you argue with your spouse everybody does it right my, my wife always says, hey, keep your voice down. We don't, we don't want the kids to hear us doing it. Well, guess what? They, they hear it. They hear it. Your kids know that, you, that you, as a spouse you argue with each other. But what they need to see more than you argue is they need to see you apologize when you're wrong. 
When, when I t- treat my wife rudely, my kids need to see me apologize for that. When I treat other people rudely, my kids need to see me make that right. When I treat them rudely, I need to apologize. You know, there's this idea that parents shouldn't have to apologize to their kids. And I just think that's bogus. Because how are we ever going to teach our, our kids to, to treat others right, to, to make amends for what they've done wrong, if we're not willing to do that when we have wronged them? And as parents, you will wrong your kids. It's part of life. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna blame one for something the other one did. You're, gonna, you're, you're just going to make mistakes as parents. It's, it's part of parenting. So when you do, make sure you own it and, and, you treat, and you show them to be responsible for their actions. Finally, teach them to serve. Serving is taught by doing. The, the role of servant is the highest role in the kingdom of God. There is no greater role than, than that of servant in God's kingdom. And so illustrating that role for, is critical to training your children. Or else they will, they will grow up in a world where they think the entire world rotates around them. If kids never learn to serve, then they will always expect other people to serve them. And I'll be honest, it's nice to be served every now and then. But the habit that we want to instill, the, the characteristic that we want to instill, is that they serve others. Parents have the wonderful privilege of training children to know their identity, their purpose, and their destiny. In reality, we were born to enjoy God. Perhaps it could be better said that we were designed to discover and enjoy the one who delights in us. And I think that's what the enemy fears the most. A people who love and enjoy and delight in their God. Part of our design is to be an eternal dwelling place of God. And I don't know that there could be a more significant purpose than that. Considering that the God of the universe longs to live and to dwell with us. Learning to be, to recognize his presence as well as to yield to, to his abiding spirit are essential practices for those who are discovering their reason for being. We are teaching children while they are on this earth. That's our, that's our primary purpose. To teach them that they are here for the worship of God. And his purposes, as his purposes become more and more pronounced in our children and in ourselves, we have the unique privilege of representing Jesus. That is who we are. That is why we are here. And people need to and should be able to see Jesus in and through us. And maybe no, no group of people more so than our kids need to see that. Our kids need to see Jesus in us. Your kids, your grandkids, the kids that go to the nursery every Sunday, they need to see in us, in all of us, in their, in their mom and dad, in their grandparents, in their church family, they need to see Jesus move in us. Our kids are not the future of the church. You've heard me say that before. They are the church now. But they are the future leaders of the church and the condition of the church that we give to them will be our responsibility. And how they lead will be a direct correlation to how well we have discipled them. How well we have trained and taught them. So we should teach them right. Jesus taught us that we should let our light so shine before men in such a way that they might see our good works and they would glorify our Father in heaven. As we reveal God for who He is, people will be drawn to Him. Isn't that right? That lift God up and all men will be drawn unto Him and they will glorify the Father in heaven. And more, more than any other group of people I want that for is our kids, the next generation of the church leaders here.
I want them to be drawn to, to, to Jesus, to glorify the Father in heaven. And I want them to do it because they have seen how to do so in us. Because they have a mom and dad who love them, who have shown them Jesus. They have grandparents who love them, who have shown them Jesus. They have a church family who loves them and has shown them the love of Jesus. We should use the best building blocks of love, of peace, of endurance, and of character to build these giant slayers. Because they're going to encounter giants. They're going to, overcome, they're going to encounter obstacles. They're going to be in the, in the last inning down 24 to 1 with one out, with one out to go. And I want them to have the confidence that they can overcome all obstacles. That they can slay giants. Because they've been raised with love and peace and endurance and character. If we'll do that, we will raise giant slayers. That will, will change not just their homes, not just the church, but change the world. And I want our kids, I want my kids, I want your kids, I want your grandkids to be world changers. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. And we thank you for loving us and giving us this great responsibility to raise the next generation of church leaders. Father, would you empower us with love and peace and endurance and character to, to model that in our lives, to, to, to instill that into the lives of of the next generation that we have influence with. Father, would you help us in raising up the next generation so that they will be able to overcome whatever obstacle they encounter, whatever giant they face, they'll stand in front of it, knowing that they serve a God who has never left them or forsaken them. And because of that, they have a chance. Father, we love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.